0: Good morning. Uh, Nice to see all of you. If you would, please open your Bibles and join me in Luke chapter 22. We are in Luke 22. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to get one to you. So raise your hand high and we'll get one to you eventually. Feel free to keep it if you don't have one or keep it and give it away to someone else. Keep it and read it with someone else. Feel free. Feel free. As you're turning to Luke 22, as we prepare to start this new series, I do have one or two, two announcements. I want to reiterate something that, that Jeff said. We have our next covenant member meeting this coming Sunday, 5 to 7 p.m., so members, please put that on your calendar. Uh, but another one is two weeks from now, almost, on Wednesdays, February 2nd, we're starting back up our uh, family discipleship Wednesday nights. We haven't figured out a good name for them yet. But there's classes, I'm going to be teaching two classes, <laughs> excuse me, the first one is called Instruments in the Hands of a Redeemer, or The Redeemer, and the subtitle is People in Need of Change, Helping People in Need of Change, and it's how Jesus uses us by his spirit and his word to be instruments in his hands to help people become more like Christ. So that's going to be on Wednesday nights, 6.15 to 7.30, and then 7.45 to 9 p.m. is a second class called Text and Canon, and that's a fancy way of describing um, the Bible, and how do you know the Bible's the Bible? How do you know sneaky Christians haven't changed it? How, how do you know these are the right books of the Bible? How did the Bible come to be? How did the Bible get to us and more? That's that class, and so um, I, I hope that you come and, and check that out. Well, we are, as Jeff prayed, starting a new series this morning, taking a break from the Gospel of John. The series is called Ecclesia Features of a Faithful Church. And that word, Ecclesia, is the Greek word for church in our English Bibles. Um, and the uh, sub subtitle this morning is The Church in God's Unfolding Plan of Redemption. So without further ado, let me go ahead and read Luke 14. To 20 from chapter 22 to set God's word before us, pray, and then we'll jump right into the message. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 14, reads When the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled. In the kingdom of God. And Jesus took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That's God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus, the gift of your spirit, the gift of your word. And we pray that for Jesus' namesake and by the power of your spirit and with your word, you would save the lost, comfort the hurting, draw back the wayward, and bless and build your church this morning. Help us understand what the church is and your cosmic plan for all who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, amen. What does it mean to be the church? Um, If we were just to pause and do a little test, and you took a pencil and you wrote down a definition of the church, I, I wonder what you would write. And I and I suspect that with between first service and this service, we'd have a pretty wide variety of definitions or descriptions of what the church is. What does it mean to be a church? And a very important question is, how do you recognize and distinguish between a true church and a false church? Because there are false churches and there are true churches, and how would you do that? How do you recognize and distinguish between a true church, true church and false church? That was a a predominant question of reformers at the time of the Reformation 500 years ago. Or another question to you. How do you recognize a healthy church from a sick church? Do you even have in your mental arsenal an understanding for health and unhealth, health and sickness in a congregation? So so for example, Jesus in, in Revelation 2 and 3, he writes seven letters to seven churches and in those churches he writes commendations of good things about those churches, but then he also provides severe correction. That if they don't repent, if they don't change, he's going to remove their lampstand because they're gospel beacons. But if their sickness and unhealth is is uh, beaconing a sick and false gospel, Jesus is going to remove that. Or, or think about the church in Corinth, how messed up they were and more. There, there are churches that are still a church, but they can be sick. And there's a spectrum of sickness to health. What metrics do you use to determine what the features of a faithful church are. Okay, let me add to that even more. Have, have you ever paused to consider that you personally contribute to either the health or the sickness of a local church? You see, in the, in the American West, most people think that what we're doing right now is a spectator event. Come get some felt needs felt and met, and then go somewhere else and go about your life. But do you know that that's the vision, that Jesus has a different vision for the local church and that Jesus says that each one of us is a contributor to either the health or sickness and on that spectrum of a local church, that we either can be an ingredient together in promoting the gospel or we can be an ingredient in undermining Jesus' gospel So how does Jesus expect you and me to think about the local church and for us to relate as the local church? If you've been around here for any length of time, you've heard me say many times that in the last, oh, 200 years or so, the doctrine of the church is the most assumed and least investigated of Christian doctrines the last 200 years. It was one of the doctrines next, next to the gospel during the time of the Reformation, and for the 1st two 200-300 years since the Reformation, there was a passionate understanding of what a local church was, what you and I were together, but then the last 200 years, pragmatism, fierce independence, individualism has gutted the Bible of what the Bible says about the local church, and so we want to recover what it means to be a church. That's what this series is about that we are embarking on. And rather than assuming what the church is, and thereby doing what's right in our own eyes, we want to hear what Jesus says by his spirit through the Bible to understand the church. We want to think carefully about what Jesus says you and I are and what we are together. In other words, we want Jesus to be the definer and determiner of our lives together not our feelings, hunches, assumptions, and more. So the series, as I mentioned earlier, is called Ecclesia. Ecclesia is the Greek word for church. And the subtitle is Features of a Faithful Church. And this morning, we're laying a foundation upon which the rest of the series is going to be built. And this morning is, is deep. And this morning, we're going to be traveling expansively in the Bible. So our aim is to lay a foundation of understanding where and what the church is in God's unfolding plan of the Bible, his unfolding plan of redemption. You know, it's been said that the local church is the audible gospel made visible. And it's also been said that Jesus has tied his message and mission to us. So if we are drifting towards sickness, so to speak, then Jesus' message and mission will be obscured or if we're moving towards health, it will be uh, proclaimed and shouted from the rooftops. The local church is God's plan A for the world. He has no plan B. So there's a blessed weightiness to being a church, and Jesus has a lot more to say about our lives together than we're going to see this morning, but that's what these coming weeks are about. So the response today to the word preached, I believe, is pretty straightforward. Today is not about do. Today is about believe and be. Today's response to the message ought to be, in my estimation, faith-filled wonder and worship of God, and the intricacies, the mysteries, and the marvel of his gospel plan. So, here's the outline for this morning, comes to us in three parts, here they are. Number one, as we look back at Luke 22, what does Jesus mean by new covenant? And in that point, we'll investigate what a covenant is and more. So what does Jesus mean by new covenant in Luke twenty-two twenty? 20? Then we'll move down and we're going to ask this question of the scriptures. What makes the new covenant new? And for there, we'll turn to Galatians chapter 3 and a few other texts. And once we look at what does Jesus mean by the new covenant, what makes the new covenant new, then we will close briefly with the question, what is The church. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Point number one What does Jesus mean by saying new covenant? Look again with me at verses 19 and 20 of Luke 22. Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of of me. And then they eat the bread. And then verse 20, and likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, now note this, Jesus says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So our purpose this morning is not to look at the Lord's Supper in depth. We'll do that in a couple weeks. But what we're doing this morning is we are honing in on what Jesus means when they drink the cup of wine, when he says, new covenant in my blood. What is he saying? So if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you're likely familiar with the Lord's Supper. And sometimes, though, familiarity creates blindness. We think we know something very well when in ca- many cases we don't. Uh, it's possible that uh, you were saved in the church tradition or you were saved at a young age and, and so you never really heard the Lord's Supper explained. We just always did it and so you assumed you knew what it meant but maybe there's more. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that there is a lot more going on than many of us are aware of. We know Jesus is doing something profound here on this Passover. We know that Jesus is taking this meal, this Last Supper, this communion, and he's taking it with the apostles before he goes to the cross to die for the sins of his bride. We understand the gospel symbolism of this Passover meal. Jesus is the new and true Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's going to redeem and rescue through his shed blood. And so the bread, he says, uniquely symbolizes his body. The wine uniquely symbolizes his blood. So the Lord's Supper, which we as a church family take every single week, summarizes and displays the gospel. We see the word of the gospel on display in cracker and cup. So these gospel realities are are familiar to our family, and maybe if you're visiting, I don't know if they're familiar to you. But here in verse 20, if you look again at what Jesus says, Jesus does not say this. He does not say, this cup that is poured out for you is in my blood. He says more, doesn't he? Jesus says, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And this is where I think the familiarity blinds us. We think, we hear that and we go, huh, cool. And then... We don't really know what that means. We know it's important, and then on we go. We need to focus on that. Something more is going on here in Jesus' words, cosmically more, expansively more. What is it? What is Jesus doing when he says, the cup poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood? Here's what he's doing. Jesus is ratifying the long-promised, new, everlasting covenant of peace, or the shorthand is just new covenant. I say long promised because all the Old Testament prophets prophesy and promise a new covenant is coming, and they variously refer to the new covenant as the everlasting covenant, or sometimes they call it the covenant of peace, and just a few times they call it new covenant. And in the New Testament, which, by the way, is just Latin for New Covenant, is a shorthand for what all the prophets promised. Jesus' own blood shed for us. Jesus' triumphant resurrection from the grave starts or inaugurates this thing, whatever it is, called the New Covenant. And more than that, because Jesus is God the Son in the flesh, Jesus, Jesus, has the power and authority to inaugurate the new covenant, whatever it is. So, to state the obvious up front, to be a Christian, since Jesus is performing this Last Supper on the eve of his death with the disciples, to be a Christian is to be a member of the new covenant, is to be a member. Of a local church. Now, it's going to take the weeks to unpack that, but that's a foundational idea to state the obvious. To be a Christian is to be a member of the New Covenant, is to be a member of a local church. So, what is a covenant? What is a covenant? Another thing that has fallen out of use, not attended to in much of the Church of the West, is that word covenant even in christian sermons and i'm going to suggest to you that's a problem here's why this big book this word of god the authoritative edict of the king this true story of the world covenant is the framework and context of this book the bible the idea of covenant whatever it is is the framework and context of the bible covenant is the background operating system of all the bible has to say nothing in the bible i'm going to make a bold statement here nothing in the bible can be understood apart from covenant So when covenant is not on our radar and we don't know what it is and we're reading the Bible, we will be prone to make mistakes in our understanding of Scripture. And more than that, from a literary perspective, as God tells us the true story of the world, God unfolds this big, mysterious book across six divine covenants. We'll return back to that statement in a few moments. So the whole Bible is covenantal. And you can't rightly understand it apart from covenant. So again, the question is, what then in the world is a covenant if it's essential to understanding the Bible? Okay, covenant. A helpful place to start, book of Malachi chapter 2, marriage is referred to as a covenant. A man and a wife marry, and God says in his word that when two become one, that marriage is a Covenantal—it's a covenant relationship. So a covenant is not a business contract. Covenant is an oath-bound relationship. So then, going back to what I said a moment ago, an oath-bound relationship is the framework of the Bible. An oath-bound relationship is the context of the Bible. An oath-bound relationship is the background operating system of the Bible. It's a relationship built on promises and pledges between parties. And key here is relationship. So a marriage takes two people who were once strangers, the man and the woman become one flesh, and a new family is made. A relationship is formed. And so this idea of covenant, oath-bound promises, This idea of a family relationship carries over into what I said a moment ago called divine covenants. A divine covenant, as the name implies, is a covenant made by God. That's what it is. And as I said, the Bible unfolds across six divine covenants that build on each other. So a divine covenant is a covenant made by God with a people of his choosing. People never approach God and say, hey God, want to make a covenant? God always, top down so to speak, comes down to people and covenants with them. So a divine covenant is an oath-bound relationship. So when Jesus says, take this cup, it's the new covenant in my blood, Jesus is doing something as God in the flesh, he is making an oath-bound relationship with people. A divine covenant is where God initiates, he promises favor, he promises blessing upon his chosen people, and the people are to respond with faithful worship and faithful obedience. Blessing, worship, and obedience. God's blessing is given to the people when they keep covenant, and God's curses are given when they break covenant. And this is vital to understand the Bible. So a a lot of you have started your Bible reading program. It's January, whatever. You know that you've got Leviticus and Numbers looming. And and with these books coming up, though, part of the confusion, for, for me personally, it was The sheer confusion of not even being able to pronounce the words in the Old Testament, let alone understand how it fits together, once you begin to understand the covenantal framework and what God does across these six divine covenants, the pieces fit together, it makes a mosaic, and you see Jesus. So it's vital to understand, from the biblical perspective, no covenant, no relationship with God. No person can walk around and say, yeah, I'm, I'm in a relationship with God and then not have covenant that God made with them. So no covenant, no relationship with God. And by the way, a covenant is always on God's terms and God is always the faithful partner. He's the covenant keeper. One of the needs covenants show us is that we need a faithful covenant keeper on our behalf. Spoiler alert, his name is Jesus and he makes a new covenant. He goes to the cross for our sins and covenant breaking. Every divine covenant in the Bible requires a faithful mediator. One way God, or or not one way, the way God makes a divine covenant is that he selects a man. That man is a mediator. He is always portrayed as a divine son, a royal son. And it's through that man that God uh, works to bring the covenant. And when God brings the covenant, he's also bringing his kingdom. In the Bible storyline, it can be summarized as God bringing his kingdom through his successive divine covenants culminating in Christ. So I keep talking about these six successive divine covenants covenants forming the backbone of scripture named after a royal son. Here's a slide. Here they are in brief. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses slash Israel, David, and Jesus. Those are the six successive building upon the other divine covenants. I have Moses slash Israel because if you go to Exodus chapter four, Moses is the mediator, but actually the entire nation of Israel is called God's son in this particular case. So as you see these names, these covenants are interrelated, but they're not the same. And the key is to recognize that that there's both continuity and discontinuity, sameness and difference. They're connected, one scholar refers to them as connected organically. Um, Thinking of an acorn, an acorn and a full mature oak tree look very different from each other, but they have the same genetic material. So the acorn of God's gospel promise is planted in the time of Adam, and then it flourishes into the oak tree with Jesus and his new covenant. So these new covenants are interrelated but here is something critical to understand. The first five, Adam to David, all the covenants are prophetic. Preparing the way and pointing to Jesus. I just said they're prophecy. How can I say that? For example, Matthew five seventeen. Uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching, and Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law, referring to the Mosaic Covenant. He says, I have come to fulfill the Mosaic Covenant. That's Matthew 5.17. The thing is, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew Matthew loves the word fulfill. He uses it 15 times in total, and all the other 14 times, it is always fulfilled with reference to prophecy. For example, this was to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said, and then he quotes an Old Testament passage. Jesus is not only obediently doing all the Mosaic law required, he is fulfilling all that it prophesied and more. We, have a, we tend to have a small view of prophecy. We just think that it's a citation of an Old Testament verse and another one in the, fulfilled in the New Testament But it's not just that, it's absolutely that, but it's more, it's also the patterns established across scripture, including the covenants. So, the first five divine covenants advance God's plan of redemptive history. The gospel was first promised in Genesis 3.15, and it's linked together and expands through these five divine covenants, and they are prophetically fulfilled in Jesus' new covenant. So so here's another slide for you. Here's a summary of what you must know about biblical divine covenants. Let me summarize this. There's six things here. Number one, divine covenant is the only way to relate to and be right with God. That's how essential and critical they are. You as a Christian cannot understand your relationship with Jesus apart from covenant. And you can't understand what God's doing in the Bible apart from covenant. Number two, God makes the covenant through his chosen human mediator, stylized as a royal son. Adam was a a son. Noah is stylized as a son. And on we go. Jesus is the true son, God in the flesh, son of David, son of man, son of God. Number three, the first five divine covenants are successive. They're related. Remember that acorn oak tree analogy I gave. The first five divine covenants are successive in time and prophetic in nature. They point forward and promise to the new covenant in Jesus. So number four, Jesus's new covenant completes and fulfills all the previous covenants. Crucial to understand your Bible as you read it. Number five, Jesus' new covenant is now, at this time, ever since he rose from the grave and poured out his spirit, Jesus' new covenant is now the only way to be right with God forever. There will not be any additional new, newer covenants after the new covenant, the Last Supper. And neither is God going to reverse and roll back redemptive history and restart a covenant that doesn't exist anymore because Jesus fulfilled it. And number six, the church, as the bride of Christ, is the climax and purpose of redemptive history and will go on forever. Forever. The church as the bride of Christ is the climax and purpose of redemptive history and will go on forever. Every Old Testament believer before the coming of Christ has now been brought into the new covenant community, the church. How do I say that? Matthew 27 Do you remember when Jesus rose from the grave, what happened in the city of Jerusalem? Matthew 27, verse 52. Not only was the the curtain torn in the temple from top to bottom and rocks broke and earthquakes and the sky turned um, all different colors, it says the dead raised when Jesus rose in Matthew 27, 52, appeared in the city to many and then they ascended with him into heaven. Why? Because the place of the dead Prior to the cross was Sheol. And Jesus going into the bosom of the grave, or as Abraham's bosom is weirdly called in the Bible, he goes to a place of comfort, and when Jesus was there, when he rose three days later, he brought the believing dead with him to heaven, and they are now all part of the new covenant church. Adam is, Moses is, David is, everybody is. All believers are. That's a lot. That's expansive. And what are we asking? The question here is, what does Jesus mean when he says, this is the new covenant in my blood? Friends, this is what he means and more. It's not a throwaway statement. He wasn't trying to fill the air with words. Jesus is claiming in that moment when his disciples don't even get it. As he hands them cracker, as he hands them the cup, and he says, drink this, this is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus is declaring and proclaiming that the cosmic gospel plan from before all time, the kingdom of Christ is now come, the new covenant is being made, and his new covenant people is the church. New covenant people are gospel people, are church people. That's why Moses could say back in Deuteronomy, and Jesus can quote Moses in the Gospel of John to say that if you you don't listen to me, to disobey Jesus is to disobey Moses because Moses believed in Jesus. Belief in the Gospel is the door key to Christ's kingdom of the New Covenant. You, friends, as a believer in Christ, are a member of the New Covenant. That's how you relate to the Trinity on the Trinity's terms. So so every Sunday, we as a family, when we take the Lord's Supper together, we are showing each other, far from being an introspective, privatized, personal meal where, where I'm just me and Jesus at the table, the Lord's Supper is lift your eyes up, celebrate the gospel, and recognize that when you eat the bread and drink the cup, you are showing to all your brothers and sisters in Christ that you remain a citizen of heaven, a gospel-believing member of the new covenant, that is to say, the church. So the question at the beginning is, what does Jesus mean by new covenant? That's what he means. Remember, where does the church fall in God's plan of redemptive history? We are the climax and purpose, what God has always planned, and he has brought all believers of all time now into the new covenant. Well, then that leads to the second question. What makes the new covenant new? What, why do we need this in the first place? And for that, we're gonna be turning to Galatians three. So please join me there, we have a long passage to look at. So as you're turning to Galatians three, the question now before us is, first of was what does Jesus mean by new covenant? And now it's what makes the new covenant new? Because if God's plan all along was to bring Jesus' eternal new covenant, why, for example, did he give the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law? God in his wisdom has decided to unfold the gospel across human history, right? He, he didn't put Jesus in the Garden of Eden, he put Adam in the Garden of Eden, and his plan across time is to eventually send the Son. So the question is, what makes the new covenant new? Well. First, how does the New Testament describe the purpose of the Old Testament? We could go to the book of Hebrews, we could go to the whole book of Romans, the whole book of Galatians. We're going to look at Galatians 3.10 and following. We're going to go down to verse 29, long passage. I'm going to make some comments along the way. The Apostle Paul is writing and he is, he is rebuking the church in Galatia for returning to the mosaic covenant and thinking that they need the mosaic covenant to be saved that they have to go to the mosaic covenant get saved then become part of the new covenant and he's rebuking them so here's what he says as he explains why galatians 3:10 and following he says for all who rely on works of the law and when he says law he's referring to the mosaic covenant as a package For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So you disobey once, one small piece, so to speak, of the Mosaic covenant, you've broken the whole thing and you're now under God's curse because you're a covenant breaker. Verse 11 He continues, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Did you catch that? The Mosaic Covenant can't justify anybody? For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, now, now, now catch this, catch the relational connections of verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith, So promises were given to Abraham. They were blessings. Those promises and blessings can come to Gentiles only through Jesus Christ. Well, how could Paul say that? Well, verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. And now this, catch this, verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Galatians three sixteen just declared and stated that the promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 20, and Genesis 22 were ultimately made to Jesus Christ. And then G- Jesus Christ would be then the fulfillment of those promises made to Abraham. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward, right? So Moses, the Mosaic covenant comes 430 years after the Abrahamic covenant. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And look at verse 19. Well, why then the law? Paul anticipates our confusion. Here's why the law. It was added Right? It was enacted, it was given because of sins, transgressions. Why the law? It was added because of transgressions, and then look what it says, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So there's an until attached to the Mosaic covenant, the law, a temporariness. Why then the law? It was added because of sins until the offspring should come. That's Jesus. We just saw him a few verses earlier. Until Jesus should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Well, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned. You hear that? Held captive and imprisoned by the law. Why? Because of sin. Until... Christ came in order that, verse 24, we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Look at verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. And verse 25. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Uh, the Greek word behind guardian, there, some of our translations translated as tutor. That's kind of helpful. It was the household slave whose job was to parent and raise and educate the children until they came of age and then took on their father's inheritance. Paul uses this word in verses 24 and 25 to describe the role of the Mosaic covenant. Its law was a guardian until Christ came. Why? So that we would be justified by faith in Christ. Verse 25, now that we, faith has come, what's our relationship to the Mosaic Covenant? We are no longer under a guardian. For, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you... Verse 27, we baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. All believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ are, are heirs of Abraham's, of Abraham. We are his offspring. So when we ask this question then, why did God give the old covenant? We discover in this long section, and more could be said, God intended the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant to be temporary until Jesus arrived in the flesh, lived in our place died for our sins, rose for our justification, ascended into heaven, sat down next to the Father, making the new covenant, pouring out his spirit. So what the law did, the law exposed and defined sin as sin. Think about Paul's argument in Romans 7, right? I wouldn't have known what lying was until God said don't lie and lust and covet and steal and more. So the purpose of the law and the sacrifices and the priests and and all that was associated, it defined sin, it exposed sin, but the law also was God's means to cover sins through animal sacrifices until the ultimate sacrifice should come, the ultimate high priest should come, Jesus. And so the law was holy, righteous, and good, Romans 7 tells us, but the law could not give what we needed most new hearts. the law could show God's holiness and beauty the law could show uh, what how God wants the world to work, but the law could not give new hearts. the law could not give the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. so then God gave the Mosaic covenant or law to expose and deal with sin, while preparing for Jesus. And now that Jesus has arrived, he's made the new covenant to do away with the old covenant. Which then begs the question, okay, that's why he gave the law, temporary. The law was a parenthesis in God's plan. So then what makes the new covenant new? Two passages. I'll read them both and then comment. Jeremiah 31 31 to 33. I, I would encourage you to write that down or turn there with me. Jeremiah 31, beginning of verse 31. There's many passages on the new covenant and the prophets. Here's one of the clearest. God declares, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Pause. The new covenant is not like the old covenant. That was verse 31 and 32. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant that they, do you see the word? Broke. Though I was their husband. So he's marrying Marriage terminology that they were a a faithless bride. For this is the covenant, verse 33, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, and here are the glories of the new covenant. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their sins, and I will remember their sin no more. Skip ahead to Ezekiel 36, three verses. Ezekiel 36, verses 25, 26, and 27. Also speaking of the new covenant, Ezekiel says... I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleannesses and from all of your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That, that passage, by the way, in Ezekiel 36 is the background of what Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 about needing to be born again and born from above. So, so here is a summary of the contrast between Israel's Mosaic Covenant and Jesus' new covenant, and what makes the new covenant new? There are seven. Number one, the new covenant gives a new creation heart belonging to the next age. What does that mean? When it promises to give a new heart, it's the heart that belongs to future glory, In the new heavens and new earth. To be a Christian, to be a believer, is to be part of the new creation. So what the new covenant gives, what no other covenant could give, is new creation hearts. That's why the Bible calls us, that's why we're regenerate, born again. Number two, the new covenant gives a new human spirit to delight in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're given a new nature. The promises to Adam and Noah and to Abraham and to Moses Israel and to David could not give a new human spirit or a new heart. Only Jesus' new covenant can do those things. Number three, the glories of the new covenant, what makes the new covenant new is that the new covenant gives the permanent, everlasting, unending, forever, indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament language, for example, of priests, prophets, and kings, was that the Holy Spirit would come upon them or overshadow them, cloak them, as it were, but could leave them. But the promise of the New Testament is that God himself wants to take up residence in us forever, for all eternity. The new covenant gives the permanent indwelling ministry of God himself. Number four. The new covenant permanently washes away your sin, past, present, and future. Under the old covenant, Old Testament Mosaic law, sacrifices every morning, every evening, all day long, sacrifice after sacrifice, blood spilt, reminder year after year that the blood of bulls and goats could not Take away sin. It covered sin temporarily, but what we needed was a better priest to offer a better sacrifice. That's the argument of Hebrews. And so when Jesus hung on that cross for our sins and his blood was spilt for his bride, Jesus washed, trampled underfoot, threw behind his back, cast into the depths of the sea all of your sin. Not just past sin, not just present sin, But your future Christian sins too. All of them. We are now justified and cloaked in Christ's righteousness. That's what the new covenant gives. That's why it goes on forever. That's called good news, by the way, and it should make you excited. Number five, the new covenant also now gives delight and obedience from faith filled hearts, no longer hearts of stone. No longer obedience from the outside in, but obedience and desire to obey from the inside out. Number six, we also saw the new covenant is filled with regenerate believers only. This is Jeremiah 31, 34. Unlike the Abrahamic covenant, signified by circumcision, however you say that word, you can figure it out. Unlike the Mosaic covenant signified by the Sabbath, you had unbelievers in Israel, you had unbelievers going from Abraham, but in the new covenant of Jesus, 100% of the people are believers. That's why we heard it say, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor. This is Jeremiah 31, 34. You don't need to have evangelism as it were in the sense that under the covenant people you don't have unsaved people in the covenant. No longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their sin. So the people who belong to the new covenant are only professors of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And number seven, the new covenant will exist forever. That's why you heard me say in the previous point that that the new covenant and that the church is the climax and purpose and plan of all of God's redemptive history. The new covenant will exist forever because your sins have been removed forever, and the Holy Spirit is indwelling you forever, and we're now the temple of God forever, which is why the Old Testament prophets called this the new everlasting covenant of peace. So I ask again, when Jesus said, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, can you answer the question better? Not just throw away words, but Jesus actually means something, as I said at the beginning, just um, exquisitely and expansively deep, broad, high and wide truth, the cosmic plan. Friends, this is yours In Jesus if you're a Christian I have just described all the glories and gifts marvels and measures and treasures that Jesus has worked for you on your behalf in the gospel that's why God became flesh truly God and truly man to live in our place take our sins on the cross rise from the grave so that he could joyfully bring you into his new covenant by his blood This includes, friends, it means that Israel is not the church in the Old Testament. Some traditions hold to that view, and they're wrong. (laughs) The reason being, the church is tied to the new covenant and its blessings. No new covenant, no church. So the church exists because Jesus' new covenant exists. So at the Last Supper, Jesus is saying that all that was once promised is now fulfilled in him. You can have a new heart, and if you're in Christ, you do. You have died to sin. Jesus has overcome, so you can overcome sin in your life. He's given you that new heart to delight in his ways. He has given you his spirit, and he is happy to do so. God is pleased with you in the Son, And moves towards us in our sin and shame, even as believers, because he loves us. We have now in the new covenant all those things that the Old Testament saints longed and looked for, as Hebrews 11 says. And now they get it too, because they've risen with Christ and they're in heaven. This and much more is all yours in Christ. This is the foundation of what it means to be the church. The church is inseparable from the new covenant. It's inseparable from the kingdom of God. The church is made by the gospel. And by the way, as the author of Hebrews argues, I'd suggest you go read it today. Beautiful book. Because Jesus, the high priest and perfect sacrifice, has done his work, and is seated next to the Father, the author of Hebrews describes Israel Old Covenant as, quote, weak, quote, useless, quote, obsolete, quote, passing away, because, quote, the better eternal covenant has come. So ever since Jesus died, Jesus rose, and Jesus poured out his spirit, the Old Mosaic Covenant does not exist anymore the new covenant does and the law of christ and his expression of all of his commands is what we are under so ever since jesus rose from the grave all of god's people past present and future adam moses david everybody has now been brought into the new covenant and the new covenant goes on forever there's no other way of salvation Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way of relating to the triune God apart from the new everlasting covenant of peace. So then, very briefly then, what is the church? The subtitle of this series is Features of a Faithful Church. Being a healthy church begins with the foundational understanding of God's cosmic plan of the gospel and where we Where the new covenant falls in that unfolding plan. The church is the purpose, the church is the climax of God's gospel plan of redemptive history. The church is the audible gospel made visible, the church is the recipient of all the long-awaited Old Testament promises of the new covenant. And so, all people everywhere across the whole globe, including friends in Israel, are all called to repent. And believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Read Acts 17. Imagine then if we were born in any other era of redemptive history. You would not have these promises. You would not have a new spirit. You would not have a new heart. You would not have the gift of God's spirit. You would not have the knowledge of your sins forever washed away, but your conscience would plague you with guilt every day because there wasn't a final and full sacrifice. Instead, you'd have a reminder every day of how um, far short you fall. You would not be able to boldly approach the throne of grace in Christ And so there'd be walls and barriers and degrees of holiness that you could never be permitted to walk into God's throne room. In fact, you'd be killed for doing that. But now, God in Christ says, come, come to the throne of grace. Come near because Father, Son, and Spirit are pleased with you in Christ. Imagine if you'd been born in the time of Noah or Abraham, Israel. Unless you are of the right biological lineage, We as Gentiles would have been born outside the covenant of community and have had to have done so much to work into the covenant at the time. But now we, this side of the cross and empty tomb, are the recipients of all the long-awaited promises. We have the marvelous new creation gifts of the new covenant that all the other saints previously dreamed of. To be the church then is to be the gospel kingdom of the new covenant and the proper response to this truth is to believe if you don't to turn from your sins to turn to christ trust the king of creation and he will gladly welcome you into his arms and for those of us who do know the savior to engage in worshipful wonder and faith-filled awe and thanksgiving that we get the blessing not because of us, but because of Christ, to be this side of the cross and have all of these glories that old saints only longed for poured upon us. Amen? Lord, your word, you speak of mystery in the New Testament, that there was mysterious truths hidden in your Old Testament that were not yet plainly revealed until the coming of Christ and outpouring of his Spirit. So, Lord, there's mysteries in this gospel that goes on forever. There's mysteries in being the bride of Christ. There's mysteries of being the eternal temple of God. And so, Lord, would you please help us understand and embrace these mysteries? Would would these truths mobilize those from backgrounds in your church of both Jew and Gentile to preach this gospel to those who don't yet know you, to see them come into your kingdom? Jesus, magnify yourself in this place, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.